Hey guys, what's up? How's it going? You can't all answer. I get it. It's cool. Um, yeah, it's good to see you guys. I'm excited to be here. If you come to Salt regularly, then you've seen me up here a lot. I'm playing guitar. My name's Isaac, as Jordan said. I'm the, I'm the worship pastor for Salt City Church and for you guys here at Salt Company. Um, and uh, me and my wife, Abby, we moved up here in June, and we moved up to help start uh, this church and this ministry. And I just want to say, like, it's been super worth it, guys. It's been awesome. And you guys are a huge part of the reason that we moved up here. And it's been really cool to see the work that God has already done in you and is doing through you. And as we like look forward, like you're going to finish your studies here. You're going to go out into the world, into like new churches and new towns and new jobs. And you're going to make an impact for the kingdom. And that's super exciting to think about. Um, and it's super awesome to be a part of. So thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks for letting us be a part of it. Um, but yeah, I'm, ex I'm excited to be able to teach the Bible tonight. It's a new experience for me. Uh, I was going to cut off my beard last week because um, my wife uh, hates it. And she's really patient. She like lets me grow it out because it's a scarf for your face. I don't know if you know this, but it's just a built-in scarf for your face. Um, but she's not a huge fan, so I was going to cut it off because I love her. You know, but I was thinking about teaching tonight, and I was like, a lot of the great theologians in history have had beards. So I better like keep it. I better keep it going for one more week just for good luck because it can't hurt. Um, so if you guys would open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at Romans 5 tonight. And Romans 5 is awesome because it's, it's kind of a, a turning point in the book of Romans. So the author, Paul, um, he's introduced this idea that we're justified, that is we're made guiltless before God. We're justified by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's gonna start unpacking that idea a little bit. It's like, so okay, we've been given this righteousness through Jesus. Like now what? What now? Like what do we, what do, we do with that? Um, I had this professor in college uh, in my argumentation and debate class and she was awesome, but she did this thing that was so frustrating. So in, in preparation for our final debate, she would call us into our office and she would have us kind of like lay out our, our plan for our final argument, right? So, so my group, we, we come into the office, we walk in, we kind of lay out our ideas, our plan. And she looks at us with this like very self-satisfied smile. She just like looks at her group and she's like, it's the beard, excuse me. She looks at us and she's just like, so what? It's like we just laid out this whole thing for like our argument and she's just like, yeah, so what? And so we'd elaborate on it a little bit more. And just with that like really frustrating little smirk, she's just like, so what? And as infuriating as that was, as frustrating as that was, she made a really good point. And her point was that you can't just, you can't just present an idea to someone and expect them to get it, expect them to care, right? You have to spell out some of the implications of that idea for them. And luckily, Paul is really good at that. He's really good at it. And in the next few chapters of Romans, we're going to see him unpack these ideas a little bit more. And as he continues to build off of these ideas that he's presented so far. So if you've been coming to Salt the past few weeks and you felt like these concepts like justification and redemption and propitiation are a bit like up in the clouds, your patience is about to pay off because this is like where the rubber starts to meet the road. All right. So we're going to go and we're going to look at the text. We're going to see that because we've been justified by faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God and the ability to rejoice in God, even in the midst of our sufferings. But before we get to that part, we're actually going to quickly look at the second half of the book first. 
And we're going to do this because Paul kind of, he kind of backtracks a little bit and he gives us more of the story. Just like we saw last week in chapter four, he went back and he talked about Abraham's relationship with God. In chapter five, he goes back even further. He goes to the very dawn of humanity and he talks about Adam. And part of the reason that Paul keeps doing this is because he wants us to see not just like the story of Jesus, he wants us to see the whole story of humanity as a narrative that reaches its climax in the story of Jesus. And he wants us to view our lives not as isolated from that story, but as a continuation of that same narrative in which we're connected to these characters of the past. So let's read verses 12 through 21 of chapter five together. And let's try to understand our connection to Adam a little bit more. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you can take a breath. You can just like process that for a little bit. Like your head might be spinning because there's a ton packed into those verses, right? And we don't have time to comb through every single detail, so we're just gonna hit the highlights and the first point that Paul makes is kind of one that's hard for us to swallow, but he doesn't sugarcoat it. And what Paul's saying in this passage, in no uncertain terms, is that you are guilty because of Adam's sin. He's saying that your beef with God, it started a long time before you were born. And it's here in the garden is where it begins. Now you might be thinking to yourself like, wait, 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 like I thought I was guilty because, because of my own sin. And you'd be right, like that's certainly true. In fact, Paul has said that exact same thing. Chapter three, verse 23, he said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in this passage, he's going out of his way to tell us that Adam's sin, his first sin, in fact, is what got us into the situation where we're separated from God and death is inevitable. He repeats this idea five times. He really drives the point home. So in verse 15, he said, many, sorry, I lost it. Here it is, many died through one man's trespass. In 16, he says, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned. 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. 19, by the one man's disobedience, we were made sinners. The many were made sinners. 
So he's not beating around the bush here, right? He's been being pretty clear that there's some connection between us and Adam and his sin and our sin. Adam doesn't stand alone in his guilt. We are implicated with him in his crime. So if you hear that and that doesn't sit well with you, I just wanna say like, I get that. Like I'm there with you. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right, like there's a tension there. But I wanna ask you to stick with me because there's really good news that follows it and it's worth hearing, it's worth waiting for. So let's try to understand this together. How can it be that Adam's sin makes me and the rest of humanity guilty before God? And the answer lies in this idea of representation. So think about with me, um, think of like a U.S. ambassador to a foreign nation, right? So an ambassador is appointed to go to a foreign country and represent the people of the United States. They speak and they act on our behalf. And it's the same way with Adam, right? When God made mankind, he started with Adam and he appointed him as a representative, representative for all humanity that was to follow after him. And this is kind of a hard concept for us to get on board with because the culture that we live in is a very individualistic culture, right? It's about me and my actions and where can I get myself in life. It's about my dreams and my goals and what can I build for myself. It's especially difficult for us to get on board with because Adam messed up, right? He screwed everything up. Like he was in this garden, like a literally perfect creation, and he had this partner, Eve, like a literally perfect partner, and they walked together with God in this garden. And God gave them one restriction. He said, don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's like, dude, you had one job. Like you had one job, man, one thing to not do, and you went and did it. And you can't imagine it took them a super long time because listen, they were naked in a garden and they didn't have any kids yet. So you can put two and two together and imagine that it didn't take him a super long time to ruin everything, right? He messed up. He messed up. He failed. And a representative that fails isn't exactly a representative that you want to align yourself with. But I want to challenge you to look at it with a great deal of humility. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Does the fact that Adam failed mean he represented you poorly? Or does it mean that he represented you accurately? I'll ask that again. Does the fact that Adam failed mean he represented you poorly? Or does it mean that he represented you accurately? And I think if you're honest with yourself, you're gonna come to the conclusion that, yeah, Adam is me and I'm him and I stand with him in his guilt. I sinned with him in his sin and I brought forth death into the world. But praise God, because Paul, he doesn't stop there. Verse 14, it says that Adam was a type or a figure or a pattern of the one who was to come. We have a new ambassador, a new representative. His name is Jesus, and he represented us in a way that we could never do. He was perfect. Let's look at verses 19, uh, 18 and 19 together. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. If we put our faith in Jesus, we're given a righteousness that's not our own, 
but it's imparted to us by our new representative. Now, there are a couple important differences between the representation that we have in Adam and the representation that we have in Jesus. And the first difference is that Jesus' representation, it's better. It's better, right? And it's not just better because he did a better job, but it's greater. It overcomes Adam's representation. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So not only does Jesus' representation bring about a different result, which is justification and life, it overwhelms and it overcomes the previous representation that we had in Adam. Now, another difference to take note of is that although we're born into Adam's representation, we have to put our faith in Jesus in order to receive him as our representative. And verse 18 might throw us off from that a little bit, right? It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. All men. So that means everybody, right? Like it would certainly seem that way if we were given this verse in isolation. Like standing on its own, that's, that's how this verse reads, right? But we can't read this verse on its own. We have to read it in the context of the chapter and of the book and indeed of the whole of scripture. And so far in Romans, Paul has made it abundantly clear and in the continuing chapters, he's gonna continue to make it clear that justification, being made right before God, only comes by faith in Jesus. Like Jordan talked about last week, being part of the people of God is inclusive in that anyone is invited. It's an, it's an open invitation, anyone's welcome but it's exclusive and that only those who accept that invitation by faith get in. So the rest of this sermon that I have prepared is, is gonna be more directed towards those who would say that they've put their faith in Jesus. So if you're here tonight and you haven't taken that step, first off, I wanna say thank you for being here. It's awesome that you're here. I'm excited that you're here. And I think that God has you here on purpose. I don't think you're here by accident. My prayer for you is that you'd see the benefits of receiving Christ as your representative and that you'd put your faith in him. God's reaching his hand out to you. He's inviting you in. Would you trust in him? Let's look at the rest of the text. Let's read verses one through 11. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, so Paul starts off by basically saying, okay, like now we've established that we've been justified before God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Here are some ways that that affects us in the future and in the here and now. He's saying, here are some implications of our justification. You need to say that five times fast. Not right now, though. Practice it at home. It'll be fine. So there are a number of things that he points out, um, but we're just going to focus on two of them. So the main idea for this passage is that because we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God and the ability to rejoice in God even in the midst of our sufferings. So let's talk about the first thing, peace with God. So have you, guys, have you guys ever like studied war at all? A little bit? You guys are in college, which probably means you went to high school, which means at some point in a classroom somewhere, you at least sat there while somebody talked at you about war and world history. So you were there, trust me, you learned about it, but we're gonna talk about it just a little bit. So in its, in its simplest terms, uh, a war is when there are two opposing forces in conflict with each other. And now I know we just started this illustration, but I'm gonna stop it already. I'm gonna pause because we have to understand something really important. To understand the peace that we have with God, we need to understand that we were at war with God. To understand and appreciate the peace that we now have with God, we need to understand that we were at war with God. So verse 10 tells us that we were his enemies. We were never just ignoring God. We were never just indifferent towards God, we stood opposed to him. And by our sin, we declared war on his holiness. So war's fought, and at the end of the war, these two opposing forces, they usually sign like a peace treaty. And uh, the peace treaty kind of laid out the ground rules for what the relationship of these two warring parties was gonna be like in the future. Now, obviously, these, tra these treaties tended to favor the victor, of the war. And usually as a part of these treaties, the losing side had to pay what was called reparations. And war reparations are a payment that the losing side has to make in order to help cover the damage or the injury that was inflicted during the war. It's like, hey, you picked a fight and you caused a bunch of damage and now you have a debt to be, a debt to be paid. You can't just call a truce. Damage has been done and somebody's got to pay for it. So here are the conditions of God's peace treaty with us. God says, I'll pay the price for the damage that you've caused. I can't just ignore it. I can't just sweep it under the rug. But I'll pay the price for it. This debt that you owe that you brought upon yourself with war, I will pay that price. And not only that, but I'll adopt you and I'll bring you into my family. And you'll become an heir to everything that I own. Guys, the thing is, there's no middle ground with God, right? You can't just like, oh, like I'm on okay terms with God. It's like either you're his enemy or you're his child. And Romans 8, 17 says, and if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Guys, we get what Jesus gets. Peace with God is more than just like a ceasefire. It's him giving you everything that he has. So that's implication one. 
of being justified by faith in Jesus, which is a pretty good implication. Justification through faith in Jesus is looking pretty peachy already. It's a great implication. So the next one, because we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we now have the ability to rejoice in God even in the midst of our sufferings. And this statement has a lot of moving parts to it, right? So let's break it down a little bit. I'm just gonna start with the first piece, rejoice. So to rejoice is to feel and express joy. And in Romans 5, Paul exhorts us, he encourages us three times um, to rejoice. And each time it, it like kind of seems to escalate a little bit. I don't know if you guys caught that. So like verse 11, this is the third time that Paul tells us to rejoice. And he's just gotten done telling us that we're saved from wrath and we're reconciled to God. We're brought back into relationship with God. And then he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. More than that, we rejoice in God. So rejoicing seems to be pretty important. Like it seems to be like a top tier priority, right? But what are we rejoicing in? Like what's the source of our joy? Well, we just read in verse 11 that we rejoice in God through Jesus, but there's more to it. There's a little bit more to it than that. Let's look back at verse two. It says that we rejoice in hope or we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So hope implies something that's in the future, right? Because you don't hope for something that you already have. Like to hope for something is to look forward to it and to anxiously await it. And when it arrives, you enjoy it. So like last week, I hoped to go see the new Black Panther movie. And on Tuesday, when I was at the movie, I didn't hope anymore because I was there. I was experiencing it. I just enjoyed it and relished in it. It was pretty good. You should go see it. It's pretty good. So Romans 5 is telling us that we should rejoice in God and who he's already revealed himself to be. Like he's shown himself to us and he's shown himself to us in scripture and in creation and in the person of Jesus Christ. He's shown us parts of who he is. But we also rejoice in the hope of a future glory yet to be revealed. There's more to God than we can see right now. And God's promised us that when we see it, it's gonna be glorious. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul's like, hey guys, if you think God is awesome now, like just wait, because it's gonna get better. Like heaven's gonna be awesome. You're gonna see God in a way that you've never seen him before. You're gonna see his glory in a fuller way. It's gonna be sweet. It's not gonna disappoint. It's gonna be great. So we have something great to look forward to. But what about the suffering? What does it mean that we rejoice in our suffering? Well, let's talk about first what it doesn't mean. And what it doesn't mean is that Christians are masochists, right? It doesn't mean that we like love suffering and we like walk around looking for opportunities to suffer and get super excited when we find them. That's not what it means. But it does mean that when we experience suffering, we're able to rejoice in the midst of it because we have a hope greater than our present circumstance. So uh, my wife is great and she's a planner. She likes to think ahead. I tend to live like moment to moment because I'm a child in an adult's body, but she's, she's a real grown adult. 
So she likes to plan out. She likes to look forward to things. And sometimes when there's like a super busy week or there's just a bunch of stuff crammed into the week that needs to get done that she's not super excited to do, she can get kind of bummed out, you know? Feels overwhelming, bums her out a little bit. But if there's something at the end of the week to look forward to, then she's able to make it through the days in between with a good attitude. It's like, this is this hard week, it's a challenging week, but Saturday, Saturday's date night. And we're gonna get some sushi. And so it's like, bring it on week, bring it on, because I got raw fish coming at me at the end of the week. It's gonna be awesome. Girls love sushi, I don't, like, it's great, but guys, write that down. Ladies love sushi. It's good to know for the future. All right, so we can rejoice in our suffering because we have something great to look forward to. But there's another way that we're able to rejoice in our suffering, and that's because we know that the suffering we experience here on earth, it has purpose. And there's something really important that I wanna make clear. And that thing is, God does not delight in the suffering of his people. Suffering is a result of a fallen world under the curse of sin. Remember Adam, remember his sin, our sin. But God gives purpose to our suffering and he does it in three ways. One, he uses it to make us more like Jesus now, in the here and now. Two, he uses it to reveal where our true hope is. And three, he uses it to make us more like Jesus later. So let's start with the first one. God uses suffering to make us more like Jesus now. Let's look at verses three and four again. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character and character produces hope. If we know what our suffering produces, like if we have an understanding that Christ-like endurance and character are being produced in our suffering, then we'll be able to rejoice in it. Like no matter how hard it is or how troubling it is, we can see that we're becoming more like Christ and we can rejoice in that. But if we miss that knowledge and we allow ourselves to become angry or bitter, we're not gonna be able to see the benefits, the Christ-likeness that God's creating in us in the midst of our suffering. Now, I don't want you to hear that and I don't want you to think, okay, so now I'm just like supposed to paint on a smile like in the middle of my trials and sufferings. I'm just supposed to like be super happy somehow all the time. And when I see my friends suffering, I'm just supposed to like tough it out and, and somehow be happy. And the answer to that is no. Like you don't have to put on a fake smile and write it out. It's okay for us as Christians to experience and to express deep hurt and sadness. But because the source of our joy is constant and unchanging, we're able to rejoice even as the situations around us change. And not just change, but get really bad. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul, he's describing some of the hardships that Christians at the time were experiencing. Their beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And he says that they're sorrowful, yet ever rejoicing. Because they knew and they could see the purpose of their suffering. And they were able to rejoice in it. So the second way that God gives us purpose to our suffering is by using it to reveal where our true hope is. And so like, if you say that your hope is in God, 
and then next week, your boyfriend or your girlfriend dumps you, right? And suddenly you're like, your whole world just starts crumbling around you. Your whole world is falling apart. Chances are that your hope wasn't really in God, but it was in that boy or that girl. And now that person's gone and your hope's running out. Your hope's left you alone. It's left you high and dry. But now let's look at what's true when our hope is in God. The suffering comes, verse four, the suffering comes and it produces endurance and character and what else? It produces more hope, right? And verse five says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Hope in God doesn't put us to shame. It doesn't leave us high and dry because the thing that we put our hope in is true. And we know that it's true because we've experienced God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been given to us. He lives in us and he lets us experience God's love and he assures us that our hope is secure. The last few weeks, I've watched our pastor Drew and his wife Melissa um, endure just a lot, of, a lot of hardship and suffering as their, their baby boy, Jude, he was born with a heart defect. I um, mean, there's plenty of uncertainty and certainly plenty of hardship ahead as Jude spends the next couple months recovering from his surgery. And Drew and Melissa are tired, they're exhausted, and they've cried so many tears. And yet I see them continue to give God glory and rejoice in their suffering because their hope is in something greater than even their son's health. Their hope has not put them to shame. It has not let them down. God may use suffering to reveal to you that your hope is in the wrong place. And through that, he's graciously giving you a chance to truly place your hope in him. What grace in suffering that God can reveal to us where our hope is and give us a chance. That's not the end of the road. It's not like, hey, you put your hope in the wrong place. Tough luck. He's graciously showing us, hey, trust, trust in me. So the third way that God gives us purpose or he gives purpose to our suffering is by using it to make us more like Jesus later. So we've already talked about how it makes us more like Jesus here and now. But we're gonna talk about how it makes us more like Jesus later. Remember the verse from Romans 8 that I quoted earlier? It was, it was uh, Romans 8, 17. And it was talking about how we're children of God. And it says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And that's a really exciting verse. It's got some sweet promises in it. But there's more to it. And it's still super exciting, but it's also like a little bit terrifying. It's a little bit scary because it promises suffering. And it says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Adam sinned, we sinned, and Jesus suffered because of it. But just as suffering on earth was a path to future glory for Jesus, God has made a way for that same suffering that we partake in with Jesus to be a path to future glory for us. Not only will we get to behold the glory of God that's yet to be revealed, but we'll get to partake in it. 
So a lot of you in this room, like I don't, I don't really know a lot of you. I don't, I don't really know where you're at in life tonight. I don't know if you, you come in here and you've had a rough life. Things have been hard and you've seen a lot of stuff go down. I don't know if you come in and like life is pretty easy and like you've had it chill and you're grateful for that, but you haven't experienced a lot of trials yet. But I do know this. I know, I know that trials and hardships and sufferings, they're gonna come, guys. You're gonna experience that in this life. And the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, God has made a way to have peace and a fullness of joy in that suffering. He's made a way for you to be represented by Jesus and he did it all while you were still weak and you were still his enemy. I'm gonna close by reading verses six through 11 again. It says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more that we're, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're justified by our faith in Jesus, and now we rejoice in God through him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've made a way for me to be in a relationship with you, and you didn't wait for me to have it altogether. You didn't wait for me to fix my problems because, God, you would be waiting forever and ever. God, I can't right the wrongs that I've done, but thank you that you've given us Jesus, that we can put our faith in him and we can be restored in relationship to you. We can be given right legal standing before you. And God, would we understand that peace that we have, that we were once at war, but God, now we are heirs with Christ. God, would you help us to, to see that truth? Would you help us to rejoice in the hope that we have in you? God, that we're gonna see you glorified in such a beautiful way and somehow through some marvelous mystery, God, that we're gonna join you in that glory. God, would you help us to celebrate that truth? Amen.